You know, as Chris was reading about Pergamum, um, I, I had the opportunity to be there and uh, stand on top of that mountain that overlooks the uh, whole valley. And uh, I was uh, where the throne of Satan was, a temple that overlooked the whole valley. So it's a pretty amazing place. In fact, one of the interesting things I got a chance to do is go to the, you know, ancient, what they would we'd probably call today hospital, although, you know, the way they treated people was a good deal different back then. They had various pools of healing water and springs and different things. But one of the things that was really cool was they had this, they built this long arched tunnel that was below grade level. And they ran water through it so there's a sound of, you know, a creek echoing in this tunnel. And they'd have the sick people walking back and forth in this tunnel. And there were little openings up at the top where the uh, quote-unquote doctors would would uh, speak into these uh, uh, echo chambers like. And it sounded like, God speaking from heaven, and that's what the sick people thought. And, uh, you know, they would speak, you are well, you are getting better, your health is improving. And so when you had somebody standing up there talking into that thing, it really did sound like a voice from heaven. It was um, a pretty interesting experience. So just a place, Pergamon, in your mind, it's a real place that had a real throne of Satan, that had a real church that was really called not to compromise in the midst of... Uh, in the midst and the height of paganism. And uh, the same for us today. Uh, we're called to be a, a separate people, not to be given over to the uh, thoughts of our age, but to be uh, molded by the truth of God. Well, good morning. We're no longer in Pergamo, we're in San Bernardino. And uh, what would God write if he were writing to us? Last week we began a series on asking the questions, why do we believe what we believe? Why do we believe what we believe? Uh, do we believe things just because we are raised as Christians? Do we believe what we believe because people that we think are smart or people that we look up to or people that, that uh, we care about believe these things? Or do we have better reasons for believing why we believe what we believe? Last week we started out with the first question is, why do we believe God exists? And uh, we looked at, uh, there's many reasons to address that question, but the one that we looked at is, the self-evident nature of God's existence by looking at His creation. The next question we're going to be looking at this morning really deals with the issue of what difference does it make what God is like? If God exists, what is He like? Is He an impersonal God who is distant and uncaring and, and uninvolved in us or is He uh, with us, or is He a personal God that, that really uh, enters into our lives and wants to uh, be part of uh, our life is God just a mighty force where everything that is is made up of the animating force of the universe the idea there is God is all and all is God that's the eastern idea of God that God is an impersonal force that he he animates everything but he himself has no personality is God that or is he a personal being that's separate from his creation yet enters in and works in and through his creation is he a personal being that created all things and involves himself personally with his creation? Is God a personal being or is he an impersonal force? This morning we're going to ask the question, why as Christians do we believe that God is a personal being um, when half of the world disagrees with us? When we say God is a personal being uh, and if we were to take a vote in the world, we, we may may lose the vote. So why is it that what we be, why do we believe what we believe when half the world disagrees with us? Why do we believe that God is a personal being? 
Remember last week we introduced the six questions we'll be asking in this series of why do we believe what we believe. Last week we asked the question, why do we believe that God exists? This week we'll ask the question, why do we believe that God is personal and involves himself in our lives? The next question will be, why do we believe that God communicates with us? Then the fourth question will be, why do we believe that the Bible is God's word? The fifth question is, is why do we believe Jesus is God's word in the flesh? And the sixth question is, why do we believe that our response to Christ is a life or death matter? Today, as we continue in this series, why do we believe what we believe, we'll be asking the second question, why do we believe God is personal? Now, remember last week I introduced this, actually I've used it before, I created this God, no guard chart in a moment when there was a person I care very much about who was raised as a Christian and went off to school and got around all of the smart intellectual people and denied the faith of his parents and in trying to struggle to get him back to the undeniable truths of Scripture, I created this little God, no God chart. And the first thing we have is the question of whether God exists or not. And we, last week we explained the implications that, uh, that if he doesn't exist, then humans are the highest uh, of all authority, that our opinions of what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, is the highest uh, of all opinions. And therefore, there's five billion different uh, versions of the truth and five billion different uh, possible versions of morality if, with each man having his own opinion. And therefore, there's no absolute truth, there's no meaning in life, and all, the only thing we have to look forward to is death. Now, if God exists, then the next question becomes whether he's personal or impersonal. Whether he's an uh, impersonal God, that is, he's amoral. An impersonal God uh, ha- is, is a cold force. It's without preference. It doesn't make distinctions between good and evil. It's, not a, it's amoral. It, there's no sense of right or wrong or truth or deception. It's a God where nothing matters. There's nothing that matters Whereas a personal God is a God that would have mind, will, and emotion. A God who has a, 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 a discernment between moral issues, between good and evil. Who has a will, who desires one thing over another. Who has emotions that's affected by uh, the choices we make and affected by how things um, go. Now these two, sim- these two ideas of personal or impersonal be- can be captured by two symbols. Uh, you're familiar with both of these symbols. The... Uh, One over here, the circle with the dark and the light, is the yin and yang symbol. It symbolizes kind of the Eastern idea of God. And what this symbolizes is that that God is in in and through all things. The symbol represents the circle of reality. He is just as much in the dark as he is in the light. He's just as much a manifestation of evil as he is good. He's just as much, uh, you know, uh, one thing or the other in the duality of of things, he's just as much, as much truth as he is lies. He's he is uh, he is the encompassing a whole of all that there is, and all that there is 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 him. And the ultimate realization in Eastern thought is, I am God. Uh, God is me, and I am God. All is God. That's the idea there. But this this idea of God is an impersonal God, a God who is just an animating force. Um, the other symbol, of course, is the cross which symbolizes a God who so loved the world that He came to deliver us out of our rebellion against Him to the very cost of the life of His only begotten Son. This is a symbol of a God who loves and a God who cares and a God that it matters to Him what we choose and it matters to Him where we go and it matters to Him what our destiny is. 
This is the Judeo-Christian view of God. And the question we ask uh, this morning is, why do we believe what we believe? Why do we believe in this personal God? Why do we believe that God is a reasoning being that evaluates and judges, uh, favors one thing and disfavors another, who is a friend to man and relates to us? Why do we believe that over the idea that that God is just a a force, uh, just a dynamic, energy-filled force that cares for no one, uh, much less about us, uh, you know, that it's kind of like we, some of our houses or some houses in Southern California are lit up by San Onofre, San Onofre nuclear power plant. It lights up your house, but you don't think that the nuclear power cares about you. You benefit from it, but you don't think, boy, that nuclear power plant really cares about me. It's impersonal force. It's a force that may have uh, some power to animate, but it doesn't care. Um, those are the two ideas about the nature of God at, at, in the most basic levels. And what difference does it make to us if God is personal or impersonal? Well, if God is personal, that means his actions and reactions towards us will be affected by our um, reactions and actions towards him, that He is that his responsiveness towards us is affected by our responsiveness towards him. Um, the Bible talks about God resisting the proud and giving grace to the humble. An inanimate force doesn't resist anything and it doesn't favor anything. To, for, to, an, to the yin and the yang, the proud and the humble are just all part of the same circle. There isn't any distinction between one or the other. You have to be a personal God to resist one thing or be responsive to another. Um, he created us to relate to him, to love and appreciate him, to yield to his brilliant wisdom, to enjoy him in his majesty and beauty, to have our lives reflected in his goodness. None of those things are possible if God is impersonal. If God is impersonal, the only thing that we would want to do with him is exploit him, right? If all God is is animating energy, then our only reason to relate to him is to try to get as much out of him as we possibly can. If he's impersonal, he doesn't care whether we're doing right or wrong. We just want to exploit him. The yin and the yang idea of God was made most popular to the Western mindset in the movie Star Wars, where the force is with you, whether you're good or evil. You tap into it, and you exploit that force for your purposes uh, to advance your will. Uh, and, you know, when you have your kids watching that for entertainment value, just let them know that there is an idea behind it. I, I watched George Lucas being interviewed Uh, And and in the interview, they were talking to him about why he created the Star Wars series. And and George Lucas said he's an advocate of myths and symbols from this course uh, created by Joseph Campbell. I won't go into that. But what he was basically saying is, I wanted to create a modern-day myth that captured Eastern thought so that I could influence, you know, the American mind towards Eastern thought in Eastern religion, because he, he, is a, he, he does believe God is an impersonal force. It's kind of like what uh, C.S. Lewis does with the, the, with the Narnia series. C.S. Lewis takes a myth and tries to capture Christian ideas into a mythical story. So, you know, Star Wars is the same thing except for capturing Eastern notions. Now, the question between the two of them is, why do we believe that God is personal rather than impersonal? And how does that affect the way we respond? Um, 
you know, really the difference between paganism and true worship is that pagan religions are always seeking ways into which to try to get God to serve man. And in that, and, and, and for that to occur, you really have to have an impersonal God because if God is more powerful than you and he has a will, you're not getting him to serve you. Uh, true religion is, is our yielding ourselves to the service of God who has a will himself. So you can see that there are, there are important distinctions here on how we approach God. So why do we believe God is personal? Well, one reason I'd like to develop this morning is very simple. I believe God is personal because I know I myself am personal. Well, what do I mean by that? I believe that God could not have been impersonal and had the capacity to create a being that's personal. I, believe, I know that God is personal because I'm personal. It takes a person to create a person, basically, is what I want to argue this morning. That a non-person can't create a person. A force without personality cannot create somebody with a full blossom of personality with mind, will, and emotion. It'd be impossible for the impersonal to create the personal. A mind could not create, a, a force without a mind could not create a mind. Uh, are you with me? A force with no will. How could a force that has no will itself create a being with will, with its volitional? How could that happen? How, how could a heartless, emotionless, no passion force create us who have heart and emotion and are affected by things? How could just an impassionate force create uh, us who ha- or have the capacity to love? Could a God with no love create uh, beings that are able to love, able to feel joy, able to feel sorrow, able to uh, sense the burden and the pain of rejection? Because I am personal, I think God also must be personal. Uh, Do you care about things? Do you care about right and wrong? Do you care about good and evil? Do you care about yourself and others? If you care, then your Creator must also care. The the, uh, title of this morning's message is, Our God Who Cares. And we're going to be looking at a couple verses here this morning to develop this idea. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28, and we'll be reading Psalms 8. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning and we just ask, God, that we would grasp the fact that you are affected by us, that you're personal, that you are moved and, and by us, that you have a will, that you have a mind, that you have purposes in, in your heart, Lord, that you're not just uh, energy, Lord. And I pray, Father, that we would recognize the importance of knowing why we believe that, but also the implications of what that means for us and how we approach you and how we live our lives. Lord, we pray that you'd bless the reading of your word this morning and that it may be edifying to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 27, says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Let's uh, also read Psalm 8. 
Turn with me to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, beginning at verse 1. Everybody there? Verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to, to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hand. And put, you put everything under his feet, all the flocks and the herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, there's so much that could be said about Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, God created man in the image of God. But today I'd like to just limit my comments on our discussion about what it says about the personal nature of God. The theme of this morning's message is this. Man is created in God's image. Man is created in God's image. And when we, when we talk about man being created in God's image, uh, we're not talking about man being a physical representation of God. How could that be? How could uh, a physical animal ever be a representation of of a infinite God? How could somebody confined to a couple feet this way and a couple feet that way uh, be a, a, a representation of a God who expands the universe? We're obviously not talking about a physical image when we're talking about man being created in the image of God. Think about it this way. I can have my image on a little picture about this big, and you could say that's an image of the pastor. But it's not very much like me. It's an image of me, but it, 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 it's a moment in time, and it's what I look like, but it doesn't speak, it doesn't act, it's on two dimensions. We're, we're talking about a God who's probably on many more dimensions than we even understand, and somehow we're an image of Him. How is it that we capture that idea that we are an image of uh, an infinite God? In what sense do we capture the image of God? We obviously, like a picture capturing my image, uh, when we say that, my image is on a picture, uh, we, we would have to concede that that's uh, uh, far short of me, but it's nevertheless my image. You can see something about me as a result of looking at a picture of me. Uh, now, this says that we, not man, not males, not, not us guys, but mankind was created in God's image. It, it talks about a man being created in God's image, male and female meaning mankind, is what is created in God's image. So there's something about the relationship of a man and a woman, there's something about our relationship together that has the capacity to reflect something beautiful about God. I think Adam and Eve prior to the fall, if you were to take a look at them and see how they related to each other and how the, there are two willful personalities uh, in and acting in and between one another, in a proper order, that you could see something about God. 
that it reflected the goodness of God, that it reflected the rightness of God, that it reflected the personality of God in and through this uh, image of a man and a woman uh, relating to one another, male and female. It's not that men were created in God's image. It's that men and women together reflected the image of God, uh, reflected the image of a personal being having a relationship with each other, uh, reflecting mind, will, and emotions coming together in unity and in harmony, rational beings, willful beings, blessing each other, and in doing that, uh, making God more visible. Now, last week we looked at the whole idea of does God exist, and we saw that the theme of last week's message was creation is God's fingerprint. But what can we know about the nature of God from the nature of what He created? Could an unfeeling uncaring, impersonal force create beings with a full blossom of personality? Would it be possible for just force to create all that comes, all that is just emerges out of us in the way we relate to each other, in the way we function, especially the way a man and a woman function? Is it possible for an impersonal being to create that? Or does what... We are like, especially before the, our rebellion against God, uh, reveal something about the nature of Him who created us. You know, when my father was um, in the Marine Corps, he, he was a writer, and uh, some of the guys who wanted to really impress their girlfriends would have him write their love letters for them, at least edit them. I mean, he never put anything in there that wasn't true. And why did they want that? They wanted their letter to be a more profound reflection of their heart. They wanted to create as much of a personal uh, power and impact as they possibly could, and so he would edit these letters and write them for the guys and put them together. Well, when you think about it, can a, could a non-feeling, impersonal person write a love letter? Could a, could a, a, uh, 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 could, a, could a beautiful poem be produced by a heartless poet? Or don't you see a reflection of the poet in the poem? Or isn't it what makes a woman's heart melt when she gets a letter that's beautiful? It isn't the black and white words on a white piece of paper that makes her heart melt. It's, a, it's, it's, the, it's the message that is a reflection of what she believes is the heart of the person who sent the letter. What I'm trying to say is you can't create a personal correspondence unless you're a person. And in the same way, how could God create us if He Himself didn't have a heart? A heartless man can't create a heart-filled expression because he's heartless. A heartless God couldn't create beings with heartfelt emotions. Um, a mindless God couldn't create rational thought. A God with no will couldn't recreate beings with a conscience. The Bible says we are created in the image of God. And the fact that we are says something about who it was that created us, just like a poem says something about the poet. We can know something about God because of who we are. And because we are personal, we can know God is personal. Man is created in God's image. 
I skipped reading that one there. Uh, and point number one here is uh, our God cares for us. Our God cares for us. Let's look at the first four verses of Psalm 8. Beginning at verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise um, because of your enemies and to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and son of man that you care for him? Now, I want you to picture this. David's a shepherd. He's writing these songs out of his, uh, psalms out of his experience. One of his uh, continual duties as a shepherd was to watch over the flock at night. And one of the things that he would see night after night, you know, you're, you're, there's not, you know, you don't have HBO back then. There's not much to look at but the sky. So as he's sitting out there all night long watching the sheep, he can either look up or look down, one or the other, and I think he spent a lot of time looking up. So it's, it's hard really to put ourselves in that context because we don't, often don't even see the stars unless we go out to Corn Springs. Anyone remember the stars out at Corn Springs? Well, those things were bright. But that's what David saw every night. And as he looked up, he didn't see just a random cluster of spots. Watching those constellations every night, he began to identify the constellations and the movement of the night sky, and he could see that year after year everything was in its place, and it was always ordered just the way it was the year before. And the procession of the moon and the procession of the stars, he, he, he I'm sure, uh, became a... Uh, you know, an astronomer in a sense, just watching them all the time. So he's looking up at this, and what can you reason from that when you're looking beyond the furthest expanses and you see something is is ordering the the order of the march of the skies through the majestic sky night after night? Uh, he looks up and he sees the majesty of God as as the stars dance across the sky in a perfect procession, perfect order, year after year, marching in the path that God has ordained. He can see that. And when he looks at how great a, a being must be to keep order with all those things, I mean, you know, if you're ever uh, a, uh, a uh, school teacher, you know keeping order in the classroom isn't too hard, easy, you know, with all those little kids running around doing their own thing. Uh, just imagine what it would be like uh, keeping in order all of, these, um, mo- all, all of these objects in motion, all of them in the same path all the time, never veering, you know a classroom whose kids never do anything but raise the hands at the right time, and, and uh, there's never anything out of order. You're looking into a universe where everything is predictable, where everything follows natural law, where you, there must be a lawgiver for those laws to be in a place. And so he's looking at this majestic order of these constellations, and he's seeing rightly how great it, how God must be to be able to manage all that is in that great beyond. And then he's also mindful of how small and weak we are. He describes us as infants and children. And uh, in his awe, he, he wonders as he's looking at the expanse of this universe and considering us in our helpless state that God cares about us and takes care of us. What, what proof uh, do you have that when you were an infant, somebody cared about you? 
You know, a lot of us get to adulthood and we think our parents didn't care about us. I wasn't loved. Uh, no one cared about me. But what proof do you have that actually someone did care about you? You made it this far. You exist. You exist. Look, if no one cared about you, uh, then you wouldn't have survived. An infant doesn't feed itself. An infant doesn't clothe itself. An infant doesn't protect itself. Somebody had to care enough about you to sustain you to adulthood. So, you you know, there's evidence of care. And uh, what David is thinking here, uh, he sees David doesn't see us as full-grown uh developed adults he still sees us as totally infants in need of god's care for us to survive and he and he recognizes that the fact that we exist are is an evidence of god's care for us that um you know that that precisely the fact that we're still alive uh that we live in this very precise condition here on earth that enables us to cling to the fragility of life uh is proof that god cares for us now think about it for a second there's all thousands and thousands of things that if they would just change slightly, we'd be dust. If the earth's angle changed enough, we'd be dust. If the distance between the earth and the sun changed just marginally, we'd be dust. If the composition of the air that we breathe is slightly different, we'd be dust. If our position in our, even in the Milky Way was changed by a few percentages of, of, to the core of the Milky Way, we'd be dust. There's all kinds of clockwork intricacies that we depend on for us to be alive. Slight alteration in anything, we would be gone. Somebody cares for us. We are like infants in a vulnerable universe. And if somebody didn't care about us that has the power to take care of us, we would be gone. Our power, we don't have the power to sustain our own existence. Our caring God is a personal God. So what difference does it make if we come to see God as being personal or impersonal? Well, if God is impersonal, if God is personal, He not only cares about us, He cares about what we do. He cares about the choices we make. He cares if we're right or wrong. He cares if we're good or evil. Because God is personal... The way we think and act affect him personally. He's personally affected by us. You affect God personally every day. What we do affects him personally every day. Let me try to illustrate it to you this way. Strangers who are personal affect you personally every day. For example, suppose you go into Stater Brothers and you're heading towards the checkout line and you can see that there's another person that's heading towards the same checkout line and that person is polite and defers to you the first position in line. Aren't you affected personally by that? You're, you're, you're grateful for their graciousness. You don't know them, but you know that, that it's nice because you know they're a person. You know, if a random cart goes rolling down the aisle and gets in line in front of you, you're not pleased by that or gives way to you. Being, it's not personal. The cart doesn't know. It doesn't have volition. It can't make that choice. But if a person defers to you, you're pleased by it. Uh, on the other side of the illustration, if you're driving to the grocery store and you see a group of teenagers who start jaywalking across the road, impeding traffic, and you have to come to a complete stop to let them go by, and they look at you with total indifference, like I own the road, you're personally affected. At least I am. 
fact, a few times when that's happened, I've actually stopped and rolled down the window. Said, hey, fellas, what? I want you to know God watches you. What? <laughs> God's watching. That's all I want you to know. <laughs> but, you know, because I, I constrain myself from saying what I really want to say. But I'm negatively affected by total strangers. By total strangers just by virtue of, of, of how they personally are treating me when I know that, you know, they're either um, being deferential or being totally uh, uncaring about me. We affect God. He knows us intimately. We're, you know, the closer people are to us, the more they affect us. And we affect God because he's personal. When we act in ways that harm ourselves and others, he's grieved by us. He's, he's grieved by us. When we bless one another and each other, it, he's pleased by us. We affect him because he's a person. We have an effect on God. An impersonal God is unmoved by whatever we do. It, uh, uh, the yin and yang God could care less what we do. It's just, you know, there's just these, there may be moral principles in it, but the, mor- the moral, there is no moral person who cares. An impersonal God is unmoved. It's just a force, not a person. An impersonal God is a cold world with no accountability. See, there's quite a, uh, an important decision to make as to what we believe and why we believe it. Man is created in God's image is our theme. Point number one is our God cares for us. And point number two is our God bestows honor on us. Not only does He care about us, He bestows honor on us. Let's take a look at Psalm 8, verses 5 through 9. Beginning at verse 5, it says, You made him a little lower than the heavenly being. Now, that word heavenly beings here, made him, meaning man, that heavenly uh, beings there is in, has, has gone through a lot of different interpretations. I think King James says, a little lower than the angels. This is the NIV. It says, a little lower than heavenly beings. The word actually is Elohim, which is God in the plural. So, I, I think a good case can be made, it, you know, it, 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 the NIV puts heavenly beings because it, it's, it's, it's divine beings in the plural, but it's the same word that's used in Genesis, let us make man, Elohim, uh, with, that we would consider an evidence of the Trinitarian nature of the one and singular God, uh, that there's three persons in the Godhead. There's that uh, entity. And so I'm, I'm pushing the idea here that the, the actual interpretation of this passage is that we're a little lower than God. And he created us a little lower than him uh, in the garden. He created us uh, to have uh, rulership over all that he has created. He's crowned us with, he's crowned him, meaning man, with glory and honor. Verse 6, you made him rule over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet. All the flocks and the herds and the beasts of the field, birds of the air and the fish of the sea, and all that swim on the paths of the sea. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so here David is reflecting back to creation. And still yet today, uh, we, we do have a great deal of authority over God's creation, though not perfect. Uh, we still domesticate animals. We still um, make choices about uh, the impact that we do and the use of God's natural environment. But in, in, in the garden, man had perfect authority all, over all that God created. He created us with this vision of placing us as his co-regents under him, above and, and, and superintending all that he had created. 
which may in fact include the angels because he created them too, but I, I don't have evidence of that here in this passage. But the point is is that uh, his, God's original design for us was to honor us, men that he created, to have authority over his design, over his creation, and it's his ultimate design for us as well to place us in authority over creation. God is like a father who has a family business who is preparing his kids to take over the family business. You know, his development of the whole thing is to pass it on to his sons and his daughters so that they can manage what he has created. That was his design for Adam and Eve and, and their offspring, and that is, will be his restored design for us. For those who view God from an Eastern perspective, they take great offense at this idea that man is above any other aspect of creation. A lot of the environmentalist movement is built on the idea that, that God isn't personal and hasn't placed man above the rest of creation. In, in, in this ideology, uh, we are equal to a gnat, really, that every life form is equal. And, uh, for example, PETA would describe the slaughter of chickens for our consumption as being akin to the Holocaust, where the Jews were slaughtered. That, that's because they see us as having no managerial right over anything else that God has created that we're equal with all the rest of what God has created. So you can see that whatever point of view of God that you have in his nature, there's, there's implications down the road in terms of uh, how you view the rest of, of, of life. And so clearly we are called as men to manage his creation well, to honor it and to see uh, have its best interests at heart. But we are above, we have been placed above, at least uh, prior to the fall, fully placed above all that he's made. God has created us, he's personal, and he's honored us with with a a place of distinction. Uh, We're the height of God's creation. If God is personal, and if the Bible's true, then we're the height of God's creation. Again, I'd like to just say the theme of this morning's message is, man is created in God's image. Point number one is our God cares for us. Point number two is our God bestowed honor on us. I'd like to conclude this morning by reading from John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The very heart of God is his love for us. And he wants us to relate to him personally now and forever. And the barrier that keeps us from that is our own fallen nature, our own sin. You know in your heart, you long to not just be hugged by a force out there. You know that you want the lap of a heavenly father to sit in. You know that there is no comfort in a cold, sterile force embracing you. You know in your heart, that what you need is the arms of the Almighty. God wants that too. And the only thing that is a barrier between us and that, He is taken care of on the cross. It is our sin that keeps us out of the arms of God. And it is for our sins and for the deliverance of sin and death that Christ came to die for us. That cross is an emblem of the personal nature of God. That cross is the love letter that He has written to us personally that says, I have taken care of and uh, made atonement. I have redeemed you from that which keeps you from me, your own sinful nature and rebellion against me.
come into my arms. Repent of your fallenness and let me make you right through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. That's pretty darn personal. And we believe in a personal God. And we believe that God is personal for many reasons, but above all, how could we even have a heart? How could we be personal ourselves? How could we even want a personal God if God himself wasn't personal? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you are personal, Lord. A force would care less about whether our choices were ruining us or are helping us. An impersonal force would care less about whether we are on a path of endless reincarnation towards good or towards evil. Lord, a personal force would care less about how we responded to moral questions. A personal force, impersonal force rather, would care nothing about our destiny. But you care about all those things, Lord. You care about us, and we affect you, and we want you to affect us. Father, your actions never do anything but good to us. And we open ourselves up to the action of the cross, where you, you, you took us out of the line of sin and death. You lifted us out of our, our, our inevitable um, march into the grave. And you sacrificed yourself in our place. You lifted us out of the prison of sin and death. And you gave us the liberty to be able to fly above the power of sin. And we just pray, Father, that this week that the liberty of Christ would be in our lives. That we'd be sanctified by our faith in him. And that we'd be free from that which weighs us down and keeps us from being in your arms. Bless us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.